It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. I'm Maria Bartiromo. I'm Greg Gutfeld. I'm Tammy Bruce. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Wednesday, May 24th, 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. As opioid-related overdose deaths soar, a new effort to reclassify fentanyl as a more dangerous drug has bipartisan tailwinds and may soon become law. House Republicans pushed it, and the White House says they're on board. It should be approved by the White House and signed into law, and it'll make a big difference over time to the overall trafficking issue. And then we have other things we need to do to make sure we shut that door some more on the bad guys. This is step one. I'm Dave Anthony. There is a new warning about the harm social media can do to kids. Just about every teenager uses it every day. You know, the anxiety disorders, the depression, the increase in suicide, the body dysmorphia and all these other things that that are taking place. And I call these phones, I refer to them as the modern day weapons of mass destruction. And I'm David Marcus. I've got the final word on the Fox News Rundown. The latest statistics from the CDC estimate that for a 12-month period ending in December of 2022, there were nearly 110,000 overdose deaths, most of those caused by opioids, including fentanyl. The year before, we experienced 107,000 overdose deaths. House Republicans, who are also doctors, spoke out Tuesday, including North Carolina Congressman Greg Murphy. I've known nine young men with whom my kids went to church, went to school, um, went, did scouts, who have died from an overdose. It is an absolute national tragedy. The National Institutes of Health says the rate of opioid-related deaths has skyrocketed over the past decade, from roughly 21,000 in 2010 to more than 80,000 in 2021. Earlier this year, Michigan mother Rebecca Kiesling told a House Homeland Security Committee hearing she lost her two sons, Caleb and Kyler, to fentanyl after they took what they thought were pain pills. I don't use the term drug overdose because this was not an overdose. This was murder. My children got fake Percocets that were... Fentanyl. There was no Percocet in it at all. And it's a homicide, not overdose. She demanded Congress act. This is a war. Act like it. Do something. While Kiesling focused on the border and also said the U.S. is letting drug dealers in, some are also focused on the drug itself. Senate and House Republicans have introduced legislation that will reclassify fentanyl permanently as a Schedule One drug rather than Schedule Two. There are critics, including various community justice, harm reduction, defense attorney and drug policy groups, who say these bills go too far. But in what may seem like rare bipartisanship, the president's administration has urged Congress to pass the bills in both the Senate and House, they're called the Halt Fentanyl Act. So it has two main prongs. Virginia Republican and Congressman Morgan Griffith is a co-sponsor of the Halt Act in the House. The first is, is that it makes permanent the scheduling of the fentanyl analogs, which we define in the bill as fentanyl-related substances, but that has a specific definition. Uh, we, de- we make the, the temporary scheduling uh, of that a permanent scheduling, so it's Schedule 1. And then the second prong is that uh, because we want to make sure that if one of the analogs ever shows any promise for medicinal purposes, that we have the ability for our research universities and other institutions to do research. They just have to register with the DEA and, and make sure that, you know, we're not having 
every Tom, Dick, Harry, or Sally uh, doing research in their basement. This has to be a legitimate organization. But um, and then that puts when working hand in glove with the current law, then that allows us to uh, reschedule if we find one of the analogs actually has merit. Now understand that forty eight hundred potential analogs exist according to the testimony given in Energy and Commerce Committee uh, a year or so ago. And our think tanks thus far have only looked at about 37. None of those showed any great promise. There was one that perhaps may someday show promise. But I'm, I'm really pleased that we have the research component in here uh, because it allows us to move forward if we find something that's positive. And, and one of the things that, you know, scientists will want to look for is, is there an analog that blocks the effect of fentanyl so that you would have something to reverse the damage that might be done in the early stages of a fentanyl overdose. And analogs being for just for the listener's sake, just um, what various forms or, or kinds of fentanyl related substances. So what you do, what the bad guys did before we put this on the books in 2018 as a temporary fix and then every couple of years we have to renew it is the bad guys were figuring out ways to create a different chemistry makeup of the fentanyl molecule mm. so that what you do if you switch it you know left-handed isotope right-handed isotope you rearrange something just a little bit in many cases you're still going to get the same impacts as fentanyl but it's not illegal if you don't have it scheduled hmm. and there's no way we can schedule all 400 or excuse me 4,800 different potential analogs and so the bad guys um, would figure out ways to try to manipulate the molecules so they could claim it was not illegal got it what the temporary scheduling did and what the permanent scheduling will do is make it so that they can't rearrange the molecule it does not mean that they're not going to still bring fentanyl in it just means that when we have a frontline law enforcement officer or if they have to go to court Nobody has to sit down and start proving that, oh, well, wait a minute, this, this is not uh, one of those analogs. And that's what was happening. People were challenging and saying, hey, this isn't really fentanyl. It's an analog. And that's not illegal. And that's why we, we created this temporary fix in the first place. And I've advocated for some time that it be a permanent fix. And I've had this bill, not just this Congress, but at least in the last Congress, maybe the last two, we've had a bill similar to this because we need to make this permanent. But it does, I mean, it is legitimate that that we have our researchers do something to see if there's anything that actually works for them that may make sense uh, medicinally. So we've left that opportunity open for our research institutions, universities, and, and other think tanks to take a look at it if they desire. And Congressman, we all see the statistics. We see the stories. We see the, the mothers and, and the different folks testifying to Congress and in other forums. Why is this sort of bill needed? Well, the DEA has said it's their number one priority, and, and the answer is there's lots of other things we can be doing and that we'll, we will try to get to. This one we already know about, and, and it has been effectively used uh, for the last five or six years and should continue to be used, um, and that is um, that the bad guys can't play games with the officers or the court system by claiming that, oh, wait, wait a minute, this isn't the same substance. So what we're doing is we're making it very clear. You're not going to play games with the molecule to try to get out of this. And if we can catch you, we're going to charge you and convict you. And uh, it's a much better system than just going on the fly, which is what we've been doing. Having it permanent makes it clear nobody should be trying to research these analogs unless they're trying to do it to find a medical purpose. 
And some of the pushback on this is in that vein, right? Some of the opponents uh, of this particular act have, have, have argued against making this Schedule 1, right? They say Schedule 1 drugs are a class of substances with no accepted medical use and a high potential for abuse. That would be like heroin and marijuana are on that list. So they're saying this is too restrictive. And, and to that point, they're, they're arguing that it's too restrictive because of all these analogs, right? That, that some of these substances are, are actually inert or can act like something that can actually reverse the effects of opioids, like n- naloxone. And I think you just referenced that. Do you think your bill does enough or should be enough to assuage um, the concerns of, of opponents that are making that claim? I do. This, I crafted this bill because I didn't want us to have a situation where if one of the 4,800, and most of my doctor friends say they don't think it's possible, But if one of the 4,800 possible analogs were to have medicinal benefit, I I would not want to ban our universities and our uh, healthcare institutions from taking a look at it. And so this allows that. So this answers that question. Uh, Another question that has been raised is, oh, will this stop us from using fentanyl, which is currently used for medicinal purposes? And the answer is no, this does not affect fentanyl itself only those analogs that the bad guys are trying to bring in the country. So, it so a hospital, this isn't going to affect hospitals and doctors from using it in pa- on patients who just came out of surgery? No, ma'am, it is not going to affect the hospitals or, or the proper medical use one iota. Schedule one, um, I imagine that changes the, the punishment. I mean, if, if, if this is enacted and you're caught at the border driving a tractor trailer through a port of entry with a, a load of fentanyl, uh, is that guy facing a different kind of consequence under this law if he's carrying a Schedule One drug versus a Schedule Two? Well, and the answer is, uh, if, he's, if he's carrying a Schedule One drug, if the bill passes and we make it permanent, he will be punished. If you don't make it permanent, there's a possibility that somewhere along the way we don't renew it and then he can't be punished at all. So there would be no punishment. Mm. But it is true that a Schedule 1 carries a higher penalty than the Schedule 2, which is what fentanyl is. It carries a higher penalty than that. Um, But that's part of our purpose is to shut down the bad guys from trying to figure out ways that they can get around um, the the law. And obviously they're not going to go to a lot of time, effort, and money to find an analog that acts a lot like fentanyl if the punishment's higher than it is for fentanyl itself. Congressman, the president's administration is backing you on this and your colleagues in the Senate as well. I think they said in a statement that the Biden administration calls on Congress to pass these bills. And I mean, we all know bipartisan support, at least it seems rare. Is this a done deal? Like, does this become law soon? Well, I would hope so, but I can't tell you that for sure because Uh, There are a number of people in leadership on the Democrat side in the House who are still opposed to it. Hopefully the White House being in favor of it, recognizing that this is not something that ought to be partisan. Uh, Once we pass it out of the House, it'll go to the Senate and hopefully the Senate will pass it on to the president's desk where based on the statement issued, it should be approved by the White House and signed into law. And it'll make a big difference over time to the overall trafficking issue. And then we have other things we need to do to make sure we shut that door some more on the bad guys. This is step one. Lastly, I'm wondering, aside from the Fentanyl Act, what else you might want to tackle? We heard from Ohio Congressman Brad Wenstrup. He's reintroducing a bill that he says. Which makes illicit fentanyl a weapon of mass destruction. And it will address the precursors coming from China going to the cartels 
It will work with Mexican military and their counter drug agencies. And I wonder if that's the kind of thing at least House Republicans may focus on, the, the chemicals that are even you know, being used to, to make fentanyl to begin with. That's certainly one of a number of different things that we need to take a look at. But I certainly would support uh, any way that we can interdict or stop the flow of the uh, pharmaceutical ingredients coming from China that the cartels then use to make the fentanyl uh, that they're bringing across the border. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is Jimmy Fallon, inviting you to join me for Fox Across America, where we'll discuss every single one of the Democrats' dumb ideas. Just kidding. It's only a three-hour show. Listen live at noon Eastern or get the podcast at foxacrossamerica.com. This is David Marcus with your Fox News commentary coming up. Whether it's TikTok or Snapchat or Instagram or some other app, a lot of American kids are using social media. A Pew Research survey shows 95% of 13- to 17-year-olds use it. A third of them admit to being on social media constantly, prompting the Surgeon General to warn in a new report it's posing a profound risk of harm. Dr. Vivek Murthy says social media is a main contributor to depression, anxiety, suicide, and loneliness. He'll get no argument from Utah Governor Spencer Cox. Ask teenagers. This is one of my favorite things to do. I ask them, are you seeing an increase in your own life, amongst your friends, in your school, in, uh, in, in depression, anxiety, and self-harm? And every one of them will say yes. Governor Cox told NBC's Meet the Press back on March 26th. And then I asked the question, what do you think is causing it? And every one of them tell me it's social media. That was after Cox, a Republican, signed a new law in Utah, putting age restrictions and other regulations in place for social media companies there, trying to limit the danger children are holding in their hands. You know, we're getting these things for our kids, kind of crossing our fingers, rolling the dice, and now we're seeing the outcomes. Tom Kirsting is a screen time expert, a licensed psychotherapist in New Jersey with a new book, Raising Healthy Teenagers. You know, the anxiety disorders, the depression, the increasing suicide, the body dysmorphia and all these other things that were that are taking place. And I call these phones. I refer to them as the modern day weapons of mass destruction. The Surgeon General says this is the defining public health issue of our time. Mental health for our kids. Do you agree? One hundred percent. I mean, you just look at the data. Look at it like this. Right. So kids are spending between eight and nine hours a day in total screen time. OK. Think about that. That's more than any life activity, including school and sleep. So they're essentially sort of checked out of the real world for the majority of their life, and they're hypnotized in the cyber world. And how can we expect you know, kids to function in a mental well way, uh, in an emotionally well way, if they're not living essentially as human beings on planet Earth and they're somewhere else? Let's think about that. How does using social media affect the brain? and the brain's development for for a child. I know it can obviously lead to addiction for adults too, but what does it do to the brain of a child? Basically what it is, is, is the human brain is called neuroplasticity, all right? So any human being that is engaged in anything considered highly stimulating for three or more hours a day, what's going to happen is the brain is going to grow new neuropathways and assimilate to that environment and potentially prune away pathways that are being underutilized. And we know our kids are spending not three hours a day, close to nine hours a day in the most highly stimulating world. So it's triggering 
you know, attentional issues, lack of focus and so forth when a kid is sitting in a classroom because they're so used to the stimulation. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of kids are being diagnosed with ADHD that likely don't even have it. So that's part one. Another thing, you know, how these things, the, the social media apps and games are designed to target the pleasure-seeking part of the brain that produces dopamine. So our kids are getting this never-ending dopamine drip all day long, right? Which is the feel-good chemical, and it's tied to every addiction. You know, as a result, what I've been seeing professionally the last few years is a major increase in um, oppositional defiant disorder, which is kids that are just disrespectful, cursing at their parents and so forth. And it's consistent with if you take a drug away from a drug addict, they're going to freak out. They're going to withdraw. They're going to crash. You take the device or the stimuli away from the child, they're going to withdraw. They're going to crash and it's going to manifest itself behaviorally. So what should a parent do? How do we manage this better? When you get to middle school, when you get to ninth grade and 10th grade, this is how kids are interacting with each other. And if your child doesn't do that, aren't they going to feel left out? Well, that's the double-edged sword. So that's where where a lot of parents are kind of just, I guess, giving in and, like I said, crossing their fingers and rolling the dice. You know, they feel like, all right, if my kid doesn't have the phone, you know, and all the social media, he's going to, he or she is going to be left out and not feel included. Now, we don't know that that's a fact just yet. You know, kids in that age, just by nature, because they're in, you know, adolescence, puberty and so forth, are just naturally insecure. You know, this is just another layering effect, right? So for any parents listening right now, if your kids already have these devices, there's a couple of things that you need to do right now. And I'm telling you this based on my professional experience. I deal with a lot of teenagers and middle schoolers. Almost every one of them is allowed to have their phones in their bedrooms with them at night, overnight in their bedroom, right? And I did my own survey a few years ago, Dave, um, when I was working at a public high school. Yeah. I collected data from about 100 kids and I asked them this question. I said, and they were all honest with me. I said, what time do you go to sleep on school nights? And 90 something out of those 100 kids told me they went to sleep between 1 and 4 a.m. and that their parents had no idea. And that's because the phone's in the bedroom. The 1 to 4 in the morning? That's correct. That's correct. Just that alone is is going to trigger a substantial mental health crisis because an exhausted, tired, grouchy kid cannot function, cannot excel in school, and is going to fall behind, and they're, they're going to get accustomed to this uh, tired, unpleasant mood, and it's and it's really just like the perfect storm. Now, you layer everything else on top of that, and now we have like the, the ultimate storm. So what about social media causes depression or anxiety? Well, a lot of it is, you know, so you take a kid who, an adolescent, right, who, you know, the biggest thing with being a preteen or teen is you're kind of trying to figure out where you fit in in the social pecking order, right? And now you get a social media app, right? And all of a sudden, you're getting all of this feedback, all of this attention, all these streaks, all these likes and so forth. None of that is genuine or real. So when you look at the term self-esteem, the important word there is the word self. It can only come from within, so happiness, confidence, and motivation can never come from the outside and only the inside out. That superficial stuff is actually stunting their self-esteem. And because they're on it all the time, they never get to actually know who they are. You know, before kids are actually on social media, directly interacting with other kids and others, they may be on YouTube and other channels just watching videos constantly, like TikTok, without actually interacting with anybody, but just watching videos all the time. What's that? And how does that affect them? Yeah, so the issue there is the algorithms, right? So TikTok and YouTube, perfect example right there. Um, you know, the, when you when you do a search for anything, right, those immediately those algorithms gather, you know, billions of videos and like narrow down videos that it now knows that you like. 
And then you just continue to get bombarded with the next video, the next video, the next video. And it's like, you know, getting sucked down this deep, dark rabbit hole. Um, and that's something I really think, you know, legislatively they need to do something about these algorithms. And, you know, you hear the stories about, you know, all these girls on TikTok developing eating disorders and body dysmorphia because their brains are just being bombarded with this stuff. And, it, and, and that's the way the brain works. The more you're exposed to something, the more you it normalizes it and the more it actualizes it. So what kind of regulation would you advocate? I mean, a lot of people are wary of the government getting involved in doing too much with our kids. It's like when we talk about education, a lot of parents are like, it's my right, not your right, when it comes to what my child should learn. Yeah, and, you know, I agree to that extent. We don't want, you know, too much government oversight controlling our lives. I totally agree with that. But would we let our kids, you know, just start smoking cigarettes when they're 13, 14, and 15? You know, we have laws for that, right? And I think this is worse. You know, when you look at the suicide rate, when you look at the, the the sense of hopelessness that kids have, that means that we parents are not doing a good job. OK, and I know there's a social conformity and all that stuff. I think most if, if there was a law, it would take the burden off the parents' shoulders, you know, because the parents, you know, the reason why they're handing these things to their kids is because of the blowback that they're getting from their kids and, you know, and the feeling of, you know, them being left out and so forth. Now, obviously, a parent, if you give your child a phone, you can put parental controls on that phone. You can put limits, right, on, on screen time. What do you recommend? Yeah, there are apps. You know, a good one is um, Net Nanny, And you could put restrictions, time limits. Uh, you could block, you know, certain keywords. Let's say, for example, like, you know, violence or murder or, or pornography or something. You know, so that you block those keywords and your child's phone will not be able to, you know, be redirected towards any websites that have any of that content. That's a good starting point. Um, and I think another important tip is that we parents need to practice what we preach. And that means when we are at home with our own children, we need to lead by example. And that means putting down our own devices, spending time together as a family, reintroducing family dinner. All those things are so very critically important for our children's overall well-being and mental health. There are those who point out that social media is not all bad here. We're talking about it in this horrible, negative way, but it does allow people to connect with people who are like themselves. It might help people who are in a, a certain, uh, let's say they're LGBTQ. They can connect with people who have like situations that they can relate to better. I mean, that's that's some of the arguments that's not all social media is bad. Yeah, well, that's true. I mean, you know, when I'm at when I'm doing my lectures, I start off by saying, listen, technology is not in and of itself a bad thing, right? Technology is a great thing. There's a lot of things we can do with it. It's kind of like, here's a perfect analogy, a glass of wine with dinner isn't necessarily a bad thing. Nine glasses of wine with dinner seven nights a week is, is a bad thing. That's where we're at. It's not the actual just the social media itself. It's the the amount of time that these kids are spending on social media and other screen time content. What should social media companies do? Some of them say they have an age restriction, but there's really no way of monitoring it. So I think what they should do is come up with a way in which, you know, let's say they the, the age is 16 years old. If they say, all right, no kids, I think it's 13 now, but let's say, all right, fine, we're going to make it so that no kids under 16 are allowed on here. But but create, you know, a way in which it makes it impossible for that kid who's 16. I don't know if you use facial recognition or whatever it is, but actually make it so that it's not possible for kids, just using that as an example, age 16, to not be able to get on there. And I think they really need to analyze these algorithms and, and do something about that. I mean, because it's just, you know, it just takes these kids at, at the most vulnerable age, developmentally, you know, it just takes them down this very deep, dark path in many instances. 
So what will it mean if nothing really changes 20 years from now? What, what do you see for our future if we allow social media to be what it is today and continue to be the same? What I worry about down the road is that because our children are living in a completely different habitat, they're living in the cyber world, right? And not as much in the real world. You know, what's going to happen when they now necessarily have to start existing in the real world? How will, will they have developed, you know, the skills that are necessary to excel in the real world, the social skills, the interaction skills, the coping skills, and, and so forth. So I do worry that, you know, down the road, you know, this generation is going to be, I, I hope I'm wrong, but like not as functional as previous generations. Tom Kirsting, licensed psychotherapist, expert on screen time and mental health, also the author of the new book, Raising Healthy Teenagers. Tom, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And in other news. I'm Gianna Gelosi. There's springtime rain, acid rain, and now poop rain? Minnesota Representative Angie Craig is looking for answers from the Federal Aviation Administration after feces of an unknown origin rained down from the sky onto one of her constituents' cars. Carissa Brown was waiting May 12th at Caribou Coffee drive through in Burnsville with her six-year-old son when she noticed gobs of smelly liquid fall onto her Honda. She says her car was covered in brown. She still got her coffee, but then she went to the car wash and it didn't get rid of all the smell, so she wiped down the rest herself. After seeing the story on the local news, Representative Craig tweeted that she sent a letter to the FAA demanding to know what happened who's responsible and what's being done to stop leakage from planes. Craig said since tanking office, constituents have alerted her to a variety of concerns regarding the effects of planes and airports in these local communities. For the Fox News Rundown, I'm Gianna Gelosi. Precise, personal, powerful. It's America's weather team in the palm of your hands. Get Fox weather updates throughout your busy day, every day. Subscribe and listen now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. David Marcus. What's on your mind? Among the most tragic events in human cultural history, was the destruction of works from the Great Library of Alexandria. Blamed on Julius Caesar, as well as later Christian and Muslim zealots, the net loss of knowledge from this font of ancient wisdom roughly coincided with what we call the Dark Ages. And we may be repeating history. From its beginnings, one of the great promises of computer technology was the possibility of maintaining a library of all human writing that could not burn, that would neither fade nor wither. The irony that has not been considered closely enough is how easily this same technology can revise or fabricate literary and historical classics, which is tantamount to destroying them. In recent months, we've learned that major publishers are using sensitivity editors to censor the works of Roald Dahl, Agatha Christie, P.G. Woodhouse, and many other classic writers. Forthgoing, all new print and digital versions of their works will reflect the moral sensibilities of the current year, as the originals make their way from used bookstores to landfills, never to be seen again. Make no mistake, this is every bit as much a tragedy as the flames licking through the walls of Egypt's great library. In fact, it might be worse. At least the lost works of Alexandria may rest in eternal peace rather than have their mutilated corpses played like a macabre marionette through the ages. 
The goal of preserving human knowledge is being twisted into the goal of reconstructing and rehabilitating human knowledge. It's a kind of imposed culture-wide forgetfulness of the fact that people ever held beliefs or said things that were offensive to modern sensibilities. History may be written by the victors at first, but we're learning that in the age of computers and sensitivity publishing, it is rewritten by the aggrieved. But where will this lead us? What goes dark in a dark age is the past. Things that had been common knowledge in science, history, ethics, legend, they erode and disappear. Most often replaced with presentist dogma, be it that of the medieval Catholic Church or the modern priestesses of wokeness. Once this process begins, it is difficult to slow, as the supposed racism is squeezed out of Jeeves and Worcester, as the founding of America changes from 1776 to 1619, as the N-word is removed from Huckleberry Finn, as Queen Elizabeth I becomes trans, a new fabricated history of mankind is wrought. This new version of events is reinforced by every chatbot, every digital textbook, every Google search result, and every passing reference in entertainment. By imposing present morality on the past, we erase the struggles that our ancestors went through to arrive at where we are. Instead of a complex tapestry that can aid us in our own cultural battles and divisions, we see a past that does nothing but confirm modern progressive ideology. Is it any wonder that so many people feel disconnected, desolate, lacking meaning and purpose? There's nothing to strive for. So certain are the arbiters of our present day culture that their beliefs are the only right and just ones, that they not only impose them on us, but on the dead as well leaving no light behind us to guide our way forward. Because there is no forward, there is only now. If pride goeth before the fall, it also goes before the rise of dark ages. Those books on our shelves are already relics. Soon they will drift into the abyss of lost wisdom, all because modern man thinks he knows better. It's time to pump the brakes on this madness. The collected writing of our ancestors is every human being's birthright, his inheritance, and nobody, no matter how pristine they believe their motives to be, has a right to deprive us of that legacy. The only way to protect the future, to protect against a new dark age, is for us to protect the past. Right now, we're failing. This is David Marcus, author of Charade, The COVID Lies That Crush a Nation. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now, stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox & Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.